Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. And today is a great day to uh, come and talk with us on our teleseminar because we're going to be talking with Ellen Ogden today about designing a kitchen sanctuary garden. What a perfect time to be talking about this. I've been out trying to plant this this past week, and um, and it'll be good to hear from from Ellen. Ellen is an old old friend of mine, and she goes we go back quite a ways. We were just trying to figure out how long it's been, and. Um, so we've talked about gardens and about plants for years and years and years, and she's an amazing gardener, and she's an amazing cook, and she's an incredible author, has authored several books. The two of my favorites are A Cook's Garden, which has some of the best recipes you'll ever ever hope to find anywhere, and then she's written this wonderful one called Designing a Kitchen uh, Garden, and um, The Complete Kitchen Garden. And so today we're going to talk about how there's kitchen designs in there and and how how having a kitchen garden moves into being a sanctuary and that, which is our theme this 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 few months is sanctuary gardens so i'm so excited to have ellen with us so ellen thanks so much for being here and i'm going to just turn this over to ellen and let her tell you a little bit about herself and how she got to this point and then, and then we'll talk about how to design some gardens and, and how to actually design a garden in such a way that it really, really becomes sanctuary. So thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Pam. Um, what a lovely introduction. So um, I was remembering when I first met you, which was at a women's herbal conference. And then I, when I realized you, we lived near each other in Vermont, um, we connected and then I became your student. So I have you to thank for introducing me to the beautiful world of plants. Um, but I was a gardener before that. I, I started a vegetable garden business called the Cook's Garden. Uh, and at the time, we really focused on growing food with real flavor. We knew there were a lot of home gardeners who were not really into growing iceberg lettuce or big boy burpee tomatoes, um, but we knew that they were probably more interested in, in European salad greens and some, some food that ha had real distinction, but you couldn't really get the seeds for them here. So that's, what, that's how I sort of got into the gardening world because we started to import seeds from Europe um, and started growing some really beautiful vegetable gardens. You need to know more. <laughs> okay, and um, but actually, my my reason for gr for writing the complete kitchen garden was because I actually am an artist. I started off at art school and graduated with a degree in art and started designing clothes and for women and realized that there was a whole world out there of combining art and gardens that I really hadn't discovered. So I started to do a lot of reading about garden design and, and learn the history of garden design and learned that really the original gardens were paradise gardens, which were started in 1500 BC in ancient Egypt. And they, they grew food, but they also were growing for a spiritual connection, to grow food for, for eating, but also food and flowers for sanctuary, for spirit, for, for the gods. And it was their, their gardening life was completely woven together with their spiritual life. And, and that's really what interested me, because as we know, the, the world of plants, what, what you give to the plants 
brings a lot back to you. So in terms of creating sanctuary gardens, I, I really feel it's a way of growing food in a space that is enclosed. Actually, the word garden means enclosure, and so it's really important to remember to, to bring art to our gardens. That's all I'm going to say for now, Pam. We can, we can start the, the dialogue. Well, thank you, Ellen, for bringing that piece in about that, you know, the gardens in the old days really, you know, there was so much more to them than just functionality of just going out and, you know, planting your, you know, yes, you planted your um, food gardens, but you also, a lot of them were, were medicinal gardens too, especially in the monasteries and places like that, I believe. And so I love that here we're coming around kind of like full circle to recognizing that the gardens we're making now do have a quality of sanctuary to them because they're, you know, they're sacred spaces and, and you go in them and you feel this amazing safety and just and, and everybody that enters, including the pollinators and, and everybody that comes into the garden, it's a safe space for them and, and we, we, we consciously are creating it in that way. So tell me about some of your gardens you're doing now. Um, well, you know, I think it's important when I when I speak to garden clubs and people who already have gardens um, to just remind people that you don't have to rip everything up and start again, but there's some basic steps that you can do that can create sanctuary in your gardens and, and connect you more fully to that space. And one of them really starts by figuring out where to put that garden. When you have the garden way out away from the house, it's it's often a little too far, to, especially if you're a cook. And for me, I often like to just get the onions simmering and then run to the garden and then bring something in and, and continue to cook. And if it's, if it's out too far, uh, I have to shut everything off. So I really believe pulling a kitchen garden as close as you can to the house so you have a pot of herbs, so you have some beautiful little salad greens, things that are, that are close so you can smell the fragrance and really enjoy the beauty of them from your kitchen window is, is important. So starting with figuring out where to put that garden and and honestly a kitchen garden is is so different than a big vegetable garden so you could have a vegetable garden way out in the back 40 but bringing a small little space near the front door or the back door is really important as well so that's step number one step number one which which I need to employ that step number one because my gardens are I have to walk way out and I have to turn turn everything off, like Ellen says, turn off all the heat, go get what you need. And I'll, oftentimes I'll be sitting there going, oh, shoot, I just need this one little herb. Let's see, how fast can I go out and get it? So that's that's my next plan is to try to put a, a small little herbs probably mostly right outside my kitchen door, really, so that I can, so I don't have to run off and get them. That's and I, it's so funny. It's so simple. And it's yet, and yet it's like, oh, that would make a huge difference if I just did that. So, <laughs> okay, step number one. Um, step number two it is actually also part of the design process because it's really important to really think about how the garden is going to fit into the landscape and fit into your house and, and the way you walk through your, your yard. But also, if you look at the ancient gardens, the paradise gardens in Egypt, and, and then through the medieval times it, when the kitchen gardens were, were part of monasteries and the nuns and monks would, would tend to the medicinal herbs and the flowers and the plants, they were often based on a four-square design. And that four-square is very symbolic. It's symbolic of the cardinal directions, the east, west, north, and south. Uh, and often the pathway that ran through those gardens 
in ancient Egypt, it was often water. They had beautiful fountains, and that really represented the four sacred liquids of life, honey, wine, water, and milk. And so there was a lot of symbolism in how they were designed. And then when you look in the Renaissance period, when the huge gardens at the Chateau de Villandry and the Chateau de Versailles were designed, you know, they were just a little over the top. But you look at the geometry of them, and they're often based again on that four square design because it's it creates orderliness and orderliness is at the time was thought of godliness and and how to keep things maintained and so using that four square it's a really great system for not only creating or, an organic rotation which naturally builds the soil but also to create an orderliness in the garden that that cuts down on the time you need to maintain it so that leads me into talking about paths and how you're going to design the paths in your garden so that they're useful and functional but also are are beautiful and create that lovely aesthetic little nest inside that space. Well, I did get it right on that one as I created my new sanctuary garden after Hurricane Irene came through here and kind of really changed the landscape. I was like, oh, good, I have a, a, a clean palette now so I can start again, and it was it was it was Ellen's idea to do this, and so I did that. I did. I made a real specific entryway. I made paths, and I did the four cardinal directions. I did the east, west, north, north, and south. And in each one of them, I um, it's like an altar. So that's how I see each one of those paths goes to a spot where you can sit. And one, you know, the west is near the water, and um, so. So it does make it, it. It's very clear that that's what you're doing. You're you're walking this path, and you're going to go to an area that has that I've actually created an altar from stone or from whatever, and you can sit there and be within that that element along with the plants that are there with that element, and so it really makes it like a contemplative um, spot to to be in, mm-hmm. and along with the plants that you're that you're um, kind of working with or being with at the time. So, But that was your idea, so thank you for that. Well, I actually got it from you, Pam, because when I studied with you as a student, it was part of the ritual that we would address the, the four cardinal directions with a little cornmeal and tobacco. I remember that very clearly, and I still do that um, several times a week. It's, it's a lovely tradition. It doesn't take long, but it really is nice to honor the directions. Yeah. Well, good. So we're on the same page about that one. <laughs> right. So from paths, then, um, it, looking at the garden beds, and I was looking at Pam's garden this morning, and she's now become a, a fan of raised beds. And I have to admit that I'm not such a big fan of raised beds, mostly because aesthetically they don't, they're, they're kind of rigid. I prefer the more standard design because really a garden is a blank canvas of ideas every year. You can, I've been gardening now for 35 years and every year my garden is a little different because I don't have raised beds. I change up the, the style, the, the dimensions, what I plant, where I plant it. And I, I like that fluidity, but I certainly understand that raised beds cuts down on weeding and, and creates natural pathways. But figuring out how you want to build those beds is key. They can be made with stone or with wood or just by building up the soil, which is an old-fashioned method that, that works really nicely as well. Well, I started in with some raised beds because my darling husband, Mark, 
said, that's what we're going to do. <laughs> because he really wanted to have some kind of like boundaries and edges. And um, he's really into like maintaining edges. So, um, and I never had done these kind of raised bets before. Um, and uh, and so, so we did them. And actually, I have become a huge believer because it's just, so manageable and I think that's what it is for me at this point in my life is that I have a lot to manage and um, the the beds just make it so much easier for me to mm. to really manage what's what's going to go in there and I you know there's not a lot of weeding involved and um, and you know you've got good compost there and so um, you know and these and these are vegetable gardens these are not these are not the herb gardens and, and I and there's not raised beds in my sanctuary garden where I have my four directional kind of thing but um but i i like it and i think um it really depends on on what you need and what you can manage in your life and so being able to be be flexible and to be open about all the possibilities yeah well the best i always say i get my best ideas from other gardeners because just getting out and visiting gardens especially wonderful old gardens you you see all the elements of classic design with the pathways with the archways going through and i think that the key is and i do think it's interesting that your sanctuary garden is where you grow your herbs and your flowers yet your vegetable garden is very rigid and what i'm really trying to convey is taking those same elements from a sanctuary garden and using them to grow vegetables and using that space. And so that leads me to the next thing, which I think is really key, and I didn't see it in your vegetable garden, although I did see it in your sanctuary garden, is to put a bench in your garden. Mm -hmm. And in my vegetable garden, I have two benches. And I find I just like to sit and figure out where am I going to plant things. And and this afternoon I was sitting on my bench and I noticed that uh, a little a little uh, vireo family had just started in a in a nest right near where I was sitting. And I probably wouldn't have noticed them if I were just in the garden trying to get the weeds up. And so being able to use that space for meditation, for sitting, for connecting to the plants and to nature is really key. So put a putting a bench in the vegetable garden and in the flower garden is really important. Mm. So so because you're kind of mixing your herbs and vegetables together. Mhm. Yeah. And um and it's in your by the way, Ellen's gardens are so gorgeous and beautiful. Uh you really if you ever get a chance and you're ever in Manchester, Vermont, then go see Ellen's gardens. But um so this is interesting because I think the way my mind has worked is that you know, vegetables, I mean, in the old days, you know, we grew a lot of food. And so, you know, everything was in very straight rows because you needed to be able to work, manage, work it. You know, you needed to be able to hoe between it and da 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 So I think I've come from this kind of mindset that, um, that you know, you're producing something. It's a production kind of mm-hmm. thing. And so, therefore, it has to be as efficient as possible and, you know, you and so I think what I need is an attitude adjustment about my, <laughs> <laughs> about my vegetables because um, because I still think that way. I still think in production mode. And I think what you're bringing now with the vegetables, which then, of course, those vegetables go and become your food and it's what you eat, is that you want to have that that incredible connection and meditation and sanctuary quality to your vegetables 
Mm-hmm. Because that's what you're eating, mm-hmm. and all that energy is going into it. So right. what do you say about that? Well, I have a couple of things to say. Um, there's a quote that um, I attribute to Mel Brooks in one of his movies, um, but I think I read it in an Anne Lamott book um, called Listen to Your Broccoli, and Your Broccoli Will Tell You How to Eat It. And I, I, when I do my garden lectures, I, I often use that quote, and everybody laughs. But I think really not everybody gets it. But how I explain it is that if you go to the grocery store and you see bro- broccoli for $1.49 a head, you'll probably buy it because it's fresh broccoli in the middle of winter. And what I do is I'll bring it home and I'll probably overcook it and I'll put a cheese sauce on it and bake it in the oven with garlic croutons because to me that's pure comfort food. It's gushy and soft, but I certainly am not tasting that broccoli. But when I'm growing the broccoli in my vegetable garden, I will watch it. I won't go on vacation the week that it's ready. Uh, I'll, before I cut it, I'll talk to that plant and then bring it into the kitchen, lightly steam it, put a little, probably take pictures of it and put it on Instagram or something, and then little lemon juice. So it's a completely different, different process of cooking when you're growing and eating from your, your kitchen garden. Mm-hmm. But I also want to go back to when I made that attitude adjustment, which was when I studied cookery at the Ballymaloe School in Shanagary, Ireland. And that was, that was totally magical. And that, going into that beautiful kitchen garden, I realized that it was a way of opening all the senses. Mm-hmm. Just walking into that garden, I could hear the birds chattering. I could smell the fragrance of the herbs. I could... I could watch the garden from a little platform looking down into that space. So it was really an opening of all the senses. And it was not just thinking about growing food. It was about life itself. And it was it was a huge attitude change for me. So when I studied there, I, I realized that I needed to come home and get rid of that ordinary garden and make it into something extraordinary. So again, just going out and visiting beautiful gardens and seeing what's possible. And, and then experimenting a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I, I hear you. And so, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna work on my attitude now. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I'm, I'm starting. I mean, this has been such a long, slow, uh, unfolding spring, and it's still very cool at night. So it's not really time to be putting tomatoes in the ground just yet. But um, so I think what I'll do with that um, small little veggie garden that's on the other side of the beds there is do make four you know make a pathway make it into four segments uh-huh. or squares and um and be a little more not so straight lined ish <laughs> well you could combine some things like you could soften the edges with some flowers put that put that beautiful entrance in i also feel that fences are important now you may not have trouble with deer a lot of people do and the automatic response is to put in a big batting cage type of fence but as a former art student we were not allowed to turn our paintings in and say they were finished unless they had a frame around them and i feel the same is true with gardens that that an entrance is nice but also a beautiful somehow edged fence that that encloses that space so it's more like going into that space as a transition from the lawn into the garden and it can be something simple I, I there's a gardening friend I have in Charlotte and she has a lovely little bell and a gong that she uses when she goes into that space so it just makes her breathe and be more present and it's not keeping anything out it's not 
really functional except that it's a reminder that she's being going into her sanctuary, which is her garden. And just something very simple like that can make a huge difference. I love that. I love the idea of, you know, setting a real intentional, like with the, with the little bells or the gong or something, it's like, okay, now I'm going to step into sanctuary. Now I'm going to step into my space, this, this space that is sacred. And, and my intention with it may be, you know, to, to, um, to everything that comes into this garden and is in this garden is filled with safety and sacredness. And I really like yeah, that idea. That's, that's such a great idea. Well, yeah. it's really about nourishment. And again, sanctuary is about nourishing the body, mind, and spirit. And that's what food does for us. It's not just growing food. It's really creating a space that's supporting the plant life and supporting your life. And the two work hand in hand in any kind of garden, but especially in a vegetable garden. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Good. I like that. So, again, I'm going to have to, because <laughs> because I have a husband who likes to, like, mow. And, you know, if I if I put fences up and do things like that, then he's like, well, I can't turn the rototiller around. Where am I going to turn the rototiller? <laughs> so, so this is a negotiation here. Yeah, but um, maybe I could get him to like go out and ring little bells and things like that to come and step into the garden. We can, hey, anything's uh, possible. Well, you know, in my book, and the book is called The Complete Kitchen Garden, and there's a lot of beautiful pictures because I find I get a lot of ideas from pictures. And one of the gardens in the book that I particularly like just has just a simple archway going into that space. And in my garden, I have a whole line of peonies along one edge, and then I have some arborvitae and some lilacs on another edge. So it's really enclosed with plants. So I don't have to worry about mowing because the plants are are defining that space with a nice edging. And of course, this time of year, it's so fragrant and heavenly. So you're not, you're, uh, you're doing everything by hand, obviously. You're, I do, yeah. You're, you're turning the soil by hand. Yeah, yeah. And your soil is probably just so, like, lovely and rich that it just, <laughs> you stick a fork in it and it just kind of crumbles, crumbles, right? Uh, well, it hasn't always been that way. I do a lot of work on my soil. Yeah. Um, but I do believe in, in not messing with it with a rototiller or mm-hmm. turning it over too much. Mm-hmm. Um, good soil, I often say, should be like chocolate cake. It should have a moistness that holds together slightly and smells sweet and be loose enough in, to be able to grow carrots and, you know, those things underground as well as hold roots of, of lettuce and things that grow above ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's an art and science, that soil thing. And again, with the raised beds, it makes it a little harder because once you fill those raised beds with with soil, you're working with the same soil year after year unless you put more compost on or change it up a little bit. Right. Right. Mhm. Yeah. So what's next? What do we do um, next? Now we've got our well, we've got our definition. Well, we've got our, okay. ba- our right. We've got our boundaries. Well, you figured out the garden should be closer to the house. Yes. We talked about paths. We talked about putting in um, a nice bench so you have a place to sit, and and then uh, the defining the area. But then the most essential thing, of course, is plants. And I start some things from seeds, and then I also like to buy plants, things like tomatoes. I like to get a good start because in Vermont we only have this little window of 90 days to, to get them fully mature. 
So, you know, it's really a fine balance. And kitchen gardens are not where you're growing everything. So it's really choosing the things that you can't buy anyplace else. If you have a wonderful farmer's market or a wonderful farmer down the road, then don't grow the same things that you can buy. Grow the things that are totally out of the ordinary. Like I just planted Cape, Aunt Molly's Cape Gooseberry, for instance, because I love those Cape Gooseberry fruits, and I can't get those at the farmer's market. I love growing a wide range of salad greens, things that I can't get at the market, Claytonia or different kinds of chicories. I grow different kinds of basil. Of course, I grow the sweet basil, but I also grow a mammoth basil or a piccolo verde basil or a cinnamon basil. So really finding things that you can't get anyplace else because that's the joy and the magic of growing your own food. And, you know, don't grow the ordinary green beans. Grow those haricot French beans or purple Italian pole beans or something that's fun. That's really key. So being selective when people plant zucchini or corn or, you know, ordinary things in their garden, I just say, Mm, edit it a little bit more and just really grow the foods that, that mm. are, are essential and, and really f- feed you in a different way. Well, that's, this is very um, timely for me to be hearing this because <laughs> I'm, I'm really needing to cut back on gardens right now and uh, it's just, there's just too much to do to be doing massive gardens. And um, like this year we decided not to plant potatoes because I was like, you know what, I've got... I've got gray organic farmers that live all around me that grow lovely potatoes, and I don't really need to to do that because it's so labor intensive and it takes up a lot of space. And um, so, I really like what you're saying, and I'm going to take this one to heart because, you know, I mean, like, do I really need to be growing zucchini? Probably not, since everybody and their 15 cousins are trying to get rid of their zucchini. Mm-hmm. So. This is great, and I, I just, again, this is this attitude adjustment of really realizing that I don't need to grow at all. I, I grow what I want, and I, I think you're good at this too, is that you grow things that are beautiful. Mm. So like, you know, maybe plant- artichokes. I love artichokes. Now, who thought you could grow artichokes in Vermont? But I just planted eight artichoke plants, and they'll be flowering by mid-July, and they're gorgeous. Mm-hmm. I'll eat probably most of them, but some I'll just let bloom, and I put them right in the front border where my flowers are. So they're an ornamental edible. They're yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Or doing like the pole beans, the purple Italian pole beans, yeah, right. or the scarlet runners, or whatever, you know, any of those really yeah. pretty ones. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there's, I have this, this um, theory of growing, it's called my 80-20 rule, 80% tried and true that you love, but try 20% new and different. So it may be artichokes, it may be Malabar spinach is something that I saw growing all over California, and I just loved it. And it's not the most delicious thing to eat, but it makes a gorgeous vine, and it's edible. And, of course, ruby chard is fantastic. It's a cut-and-come-again, and and you can put it anywhere in the garden, and it will thrive. So there's just a lot of really interesting edible plants. Good. Yeah, that's, I'm, I'm, I'm inspired. Oh, good, good, good. <laughs> but I have one more, one more thing, um, which I think is really key, and that's really adding your personality to the garden and having fun in the garden. And I, I think it's, it's nice. There's, I always say there's a fine line between art and junk, you know, too much, too much stuff in the garden doesn't really look pretty. But putting some essential things, like Pam and your beautiful herb garden, that lovely goddess, you've had, you've had her there since you 
first moved in, I think, and and I look forward to seeing her when I come to visit you, and just something like that, which means a lot to you to have her there, and, and she kind of rules that garden, and so finding things, either something from your great-grandmother's garden that you can put in your garden, or, or some wonderful art that makes you smile, and, and remembering just to have fun in that garden space. It's not serious. We get sometimes too serious about our gardens, and we need to remember to smile and relax and have fun. Yeah. Well, thanks for mentioning my my goddess statue because, yes, she sits in the middle of that very first garden that I made mm-hmm. um, when I first moved here. And because and, this, you know, there was no gardens at all here or anything even remotely close. Um, and we had to, and that is actually sort of, it's not really a raised bed, but it's, it is defined by borders. Um, but it was because this was a, this was a horse farm and that spot where that, where that garden is right now was dirt was like there was no grass growing even because mm-hmm. it was the barnyard and um so uh so that garden is really special because it yes, was the first one is. and the and the and the goddess is in there and she kind of she kind of reigns over the whole thing so mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's important to um and some people i see put crystals in their garden and or statue, you know, other or kinds of nice balls. Yeah, those are nice too. Yeah, fun things like that. Yeah, yeah. I usually put some something that grows up that I can grow vines on because there's there's wonderful to have drama in the garden, and you get that by having vertical elements. And there's a lot of flowers and vegetables that love to grow up. Like look at lemon cucumbers or those pole beans I was mentioning. Um, of course, you know, there's a lot of there's some zucchinis that like to grow up. Cucumbers love to grow up. So adding drama to the garden by planting vertical elements is really nice. Yeah, so um, so let's see. When you say vertical elements, so you, you'd use like poles? Just like <laughs> poles or like, <laughs> give, me some, give me some ideas. Um, or, or bamboo. Like, I love bamboo. 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 I use bamboo and I make teepees. Uh, I use bamboo. I have all sizes. I have 10 foot tall, 8 foot tall, 6 foot tall, and I strap them together with twine and I grow my peas on them and then just take it down at the end of the season or I make big entrances into the garden. Or I just use bamboo all the time because it's so decorative and it's so ornamental and it's, it's natural looking. And it holds up. It holds up really well. Yeah, yeah, cool, good. Great. All right. Well, this is exciting. I hope everybody's <laughs> getting excited about the gardens you're going to create out there. Um, so, so Ellen, just tell me a little bit, a, a little bit more about, like, um, I mean, you're always changing and evolving and growing and writing one more. Actually, I had an idea for you today is that your next book should really be about sanctuary gardens. <laughs> like, really? What do you uh, think about that? I know you're, I know you're sort of thinking of in this sanctuary direction, and I'm just wondering what might be your next. Oh, next well, next project or what's 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 on your plate? Oh well, thank you for asking. I actually have a contract with Rodale Books right now to do a new book on heirloom gardens, and there will certainly be a, a mention of sanctuary. But I'm also really interested in terms of open pollinated seed saving, um, how what people used to grow and why they used to grow it, and really looking at those those plants that have wonderful fragrance. Have you ever noticed that some of the modern flowers don't have any fragrance anymore, but they have a lot of vigor? Just 
really looking at the whole world of heirlooms. And so there will be designs that people can use. I mean, when I wrote The Complete Kitchen Garden, the idea was I just wanted to give people ideas so it's based on theme garden designs. And then, of course, there's recipes because I'm a cook as well. And this new book, The Heirloom Kitchen Garden, will be based on heirloom plants, and there will be theme gardens and recipes that will be used to integrate with the heirloom plants. So I'm just starting it now. My, my deadline will be a year from now, and then the book will come out in 2019. So we have a long way to wait. We have a long time. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, I might have to pick your brain before then, but <laughs> <laughs> that's great. So let's see. Do we have any questions out here for Ellen? April, you must have some garden questions. If you do, just press star 5 and raise your hand. Sometimes it takes, okay, there you are. Okay, now let me just unmute you. Okay, hi, April. How are you doing today? Hi there. This is really enjoyable. I love hearing both of you talk about those gardens, and I'm happy I've seen Pam so I couldn't visualize it. I wish I could see Ellen. Um, so a lot of questions came up for me, but first of all, I wanted to ask about soil because um, particularly where I am now, the native soil is like almost pure clay. So to make gardens, um, I'm in a co-housing. People have put, of course, um, raised beds and, and artificially made um, landscaping with soil brought in from other places. And I'm just curious about all the things that go into making the soil good. I know there's you know, a lot of science to it, but I, I was interested in sort of the, I guess, the nature spirit side of it, working with soil, because I know that, you know, for soil to be really good, it wants to be in place for a while and have all those great little funguses and tiny networks going on. And you know, what we're doing is dumping a lot of stuff from somewhere, I don't even know where, on top of this clay. And mm -hmm. so I'm just curious about any ideas of, how to work with that to make mm. it more um, more loving or more um, family-like or whatever you can suggest. Mm. That's such a good question. Pam, do you want to answer that? Do you want to start off? She's shaking her head no. <laughs> well, you know, soil is a, is a huge topic, and there's books that are just written about soil. So I suggest if you're really interested to really read about soil and under, get to understand it. Um, from, uh, I don't know much about clay soil, but my understanding is that it's pretty rich. I mean, if you go to Monticello, there's a, it's clay soil there, and there's a lot of nutrients there, um, but it is heavy for certain crops. And so you don't necessarily, you're not going to have the same soil that we have up here, which is, is a little looser, of course. But, um, but in terms of what I know about soil, um, is how I work with my soil is I put compost on that I've made. I use screen compost. I, I have two compost bins. I have my hot compost and my cold compost, and, and the hot compost heats up so that all the weeds are killed in it, and the cold compost is, is mostly just the plants from the end of the season that just will take a while to, to degrade. So I always put compost in the spring and the fall, and I use cover crops because that adds texture, and I think 
that's maybe the most important thing that people forget, that soil, good soil has good texture. Um, but of course, organic is, is, is important as well. And in a four-square design, which we talked about a little bit, when you rotate your crops, that's, um, that's alleviating soil-borne diseases that can attack the, the crop um, if it's growing in the same place two or three years in a row. So you know, there's a lot about soil. Do you want to add to that, Pam? Well, I just, um, you know, one of the things that, um, I mean, we do a lot of composting here, um, and, you know, we let our compost sit for two years. And um, right now I'm just opening up a, a new bin and starting to use it, and it is so incredible. It's like this black, you know, black dirt. It's it's amazing. So um, I really like the idea of, of compost and composting and bringing as much in. You know, ours is a hot compost um, and we're you know using all kinds of materials and so I like compost but the other thing with heavy soils is um, you know a little bit of sand or something that lightens it up a little bit and I've noticed this since <laughs> since Hurricane Irene and you know half the mountain came down and deposited itself right in my yard um, actually the soil in um, in um, that garden is quite Sandy has a lot of sand in it, and so it's very light. Whereas prior to that, it was kind of clayey because it was, you know, near the stream, and um, it was kind of heavy. And so that's another thought: is you know, besides compost, which is great, is is if it's super clay, just mixing in some sand. I don't know. What do you think about sand, Alan? Are you? A f I'm not that familiar with yeah. with putting in sand. I know that it would it probably would be very good, but it doesn't have nutrients, in right. it, but it would create drainage if that's right. the issue. And also adapting the crops that you grow to what you have, too. Um, so uh, clearly if it's too heavy, you're not going to be growing those root crops. Right. You're going to be doing something else. Right, right. Yeah. Does that help at all, April? It does, yeah. And um, so now I want to go off on a slightly different tangent with the two of you, since you two wonderful women are there on the phone. Um, how about working with the nature spirits, both of the little um, plants that you get out of the seed packet and mm. with the ones that come in from the woods? Mm. Mm. So you're, you're, the question is, <laughs> ask that one more time. Okay. Did you say nature spirits? I don't, yeah, nature, anything you want to say about them. But um, I don't know, I was reading this book, the book about trees and the hidden life of trees, and he's saying mm -hmm. how, you know, the wild forests, the trees can communicate with each other really well mm -hmm. because of those fungal networks. But, you know, mm -hmm. in cultivated places, they can't because we've, we've messed up their networks. But that's, you know, sort of on, a, on one level. Mm -hmm. But I'm thinking about, you know, the little plants that we plant from seed packets and mm -hmm. then the ones that sort of sneak into the garden that are mm -hmm. wild and also in relation to the nature spirits. Just anything you'd be interested to say yeah. about that. Well, I love, the, I love the question because, of course, there's no real answer to that. Um, but <laughs> what I envision when you're speaking um, is about the difference between seeds you plant in a seed packet and seeds that come naturally to your garden. 
Um, I know studying with Pam, there's the the idea that, that plants come to you and the ones that you need, and I strongly believe in that. Um, I do think that's one of the reasons I'm writing this new heirloom book as well, because seeds are so important. And we have forgotten when we just rip open a packet of seeds and plant it in the ground, we're not really taking the time to look at those seeds and say, where did these come from? Who grew these? And having been in the seed business, I know there's about there's about five or six different middlemen that that you know that seed journeyed to before it came to you in a little seed packet. And you know they used to we didn't used to have seed packets. We used to be able to to grow a plant and we would leave half the crop in the ground and let that plant grow and then we would save the seed for the following year. And that was sacred seed because if your seed didn't grow, you didn't have a crop the following year. So seed itself in itself is sacred. And so buying from local small seed companies is so important to support uh, local agriculture, open pollinated varieties, not buying from the same old place, which is probably a, you know, a bigger company, but really cultivating relationships with smaller seed companies. And I'm really hoping that there'll be more seed libraries. There used to be this, this idea that people would, could go someplace and get their seeds and trade their seeds, and it was a seed swap. And so I'm really hoping that next conversation that we have in terms of agriculture and, and where we need to go is about our seed supply and how we need to keep it viable and how we need to be responsible for our own seed growing as much as possible. Um, April, I think that was a really good question. And as you know, because you've seen my gardens anyway, is that um, I have a tendency to let a lot of the wild stuff just stay. <laughs> um, you know, I try to, you know, manage the ones that I want to have there, but then to also the ones that want to be there can be there. And so I've I've done that quite a bit in, in my gardens is to, to let what wants to be there be there with, you know, some you know, with a little bit of a little bit of like, well, maybe we don't need that quantity of it here. So, <laughs> but um, because I think what happens when you do that is just exactly what you're asking about and talking about is that it brings some of that that wild in, at which what comes along with the wild is like, you know, um, you know, what is it that that makes a plant grow where it grows, and why does it grow there, and why does it want to grow there? Like, what's all that about? You know, part of that, that's part of the great mystery. It's like there's this whole big, amazing, um, interconnected, uh, you know, um, life that's going on out there and communication between the different plants. So, you know, why did why did that Angelica decide that it wanted to come in and, and wanted to grow there right next to my sanctuary garden? Okay, great. Well, it's been great to have Angelica. And then the second part of your question about the nature spirits, um, I, you know, I mean, I, I have probably a whole big long rap I could do about that. But basically, um, you know, the the there's you know we've got we've got we've got the plants and the trees, which are really what's keeping things going here. You know, it's what makes this oxygen rich environment. Um, we've got human beings who are you know I kind of the way I look at it is they kind of fell off the cart a long time ago, and it's it's time to get back onto the cart. It's time to like join in again and then we've got the nature spirits and the nature spirits to me are the ones that the beings the the, the living beings that are a part of this natural world that that are like the um uh 
like the maintainers, <laughs> the ones that really help maintain the that vital essence, that 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 which makes makes life live. And I I feel like what's happened with the nature spirits, a lot of them have gone into hiding. They've you know they've kind of been like, oh, what's happening here? Ooh, what kind of weird shit are they doing here? Oh man, I think I better go. I'm going to check out and I'm going to go over there. So I think part of what we want to be doing in our gardens is inviting the nature spirits back into our gardens and, and making, like Ellen talks about, like making special little spots maybe that are, that are invitational. For, so like right at the entrance of, of my sanctuary garden where there's, you know, the entryway, right to the right, to the left side of it, there's a little tiny, uh, I would call it like a little fairy house. Like you see them a lot in Ireland. They're little, little built, some people build little things, some people make them out of stone, but they're specifically there for the nature spirits, or some would call it the fairy folk, um, but it's it's like intentional. And so, like when we have our meals here, and we make a little spirit plate, we put food on the spirit plate, and we take that little spirit plate and we bring it to that little house. And you know, we just kind of leave the food there. And so, it's very intentional of inviting in those whatever you nature spirits, whatever you want to call them. I would say, you know, it's it's those kind of the unseen world that, you know, that could switch it, could flop over into the seen world at times, depending, um, and uh, that really make life live, that, that bring the vitality, that bring the dynamicness into it. So that's that's kind of my thought about it. Mm-hmm. It's lovely. What do you think about that, April? Oh, I love it. I love what both of you said. It's like all the heritage of the seeds and all the practical things and all the magic put together. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. Do you have any other questions? Hmm. I think you should give somebody else a turn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I just, um, I just feel like the whole idea of growing food and herbs and plants you know, whatever it is. I mean, the the flowers are are there for a reason too. I mean, they they bring beauty and um, the the fragrance and all of that. But I just feel like for even if people don't have a lot of land, I think some people get limited by feeling like, well, I don't really have a space to do a mm-hmm. garden. But you know, there you can do containers. You can do container gardens. You can put it on your deck and make it beautiful. So I'm just feeling like the very act of doing a garden, there's something in that that is healing, is not only good for yourself personally, but is good for the environment. So whatever environment you're in, because it, it, it you know, there's a whole energy that gets created in that environment, and that um, there gets it's relational. So there gets to be a relationship between you and, and your plants, and then everyone else that comes in, the hummingbirds. So, f- for example, on our little front porch that we have, we always put a hanging basket there, and the hummingbirds just love to come to it. So I hadn't gotten around to putting my hanging basket out there because it's been you know a little chilly at nights and, and everything. And I would, but I'd go out there in the morning and I'd sit out there, you know, as the sun was rising, and at least three or four hummingbirds came to the spot looking for the hanging basket that is there every year <laughs> and I was like oh my god the hanging basket where is it oh my god I gotta get it out here these poor these hummingbirds are coming looking for it and it's not here yet oh my gosh and um and it just made me so aware 
of the environment that I have really worked to create here and the birds and the bees and, and, and you know, all of the, the life that has that is a part of this environment. And it was like, here's where the hummingbirds, like, expecting the hanging basket there and it wasn't there. And so that, too, even though it's a small little thing, it's just, it's a small little thing that I do, but it adds to the the whole energy of of it all. So I don't know. What, mm. do, you, what do you have to say about oh, all that? Totally, totally. Yeah. As much as you can build nature. I mean, we think of gardens, we cultivate that space, and it's it's, it's really chopping away at nature when we need to be inviting it in. So always creating as much natural space with the domesticated space is important. I mean, just the very act of creating a garden, you're, you're hacking into the soil, you're cutting down trees, you're clearing out the natural grasses. And so it has to be a give and take, and, um, and the plants will, will give back when you give to them. Yeah, yeah. So... Okay, so um, I would like to hear, Ellen, what do you have coming up? What kind of, you you do lots of talks, you give lectures, you do this, you do that, you go here, you go there. What's what's next? Where where can people see you and do a class with you or listen to you uh, talk more about all this lovely stuff? What do you you got coming up? Oh, my gosh, Pam. Well, um, my lecture season is really January to June, and I've got a few more lectures coming up, but I have the summer cleared out, which is nice because I need that time for writing. And I really feel that, that as you know, because you lecture as well, that you have a busy time and you have a quiet time. And, and so I'm looking forward to, honestly, just sitting on the bench in my garden and having some quiet time. So oh, thank you for asking, but I really just need some some time to be quiet that's you know this summer there's nothing like just being able to sit out on your back porch and listen to those tree frogs and look at the stars it's just such a magical time of year yeah it certainly is yeah well thank you so much for being with us today Ellen I I really appreciate it and this of course uh, is is recorded and this um, teleseminar and so you can go on to the website of the organization of nature evolutionaries and go to the teleseminar page and you can find the recording of this on there so you can listen to it over and over again so that you can uh, go back and, and catch all of the wonderful things that Ellen shared with us about how to be creating your kitchen garden which also is a sanctuary garden um, as well so I just want to remind you that next month our teleseminar in June will be um, Wild Water, an Urban Sanctuary Garden with Emily and Mark Madison. So for those of you who live in a city or near a city, not to worry that you can have a sanctuary garden there. And so they will be talking about that next month. So we all we invite you all to please join us um, in June for that. You can go to our website and you can sign up to be on our mailing list and you can receive our newsletters. Uh, please be sure to watch our Becoming a Nature Evolutionary video, which we completed not too long ago. We're, we're working on a whole new web, uh, web design right now too. So in a couple weeks or so, you can come to our website and see what, what we got new that's happening there. And we're just uh, so happy that you were able to join us today. So I hope you're going to be inspired and get out there in your garden and create some beautiful pathways and nice 
boundaries and yummy things to eat. And be sure to put the bench there so that you can sit there and really enjoy the whole thing. <laughs> that's part of it, you know. It's like, wait a minute, we should be enjoying these beautiful gardens. So, any final words, Ellen? Before no, we but it's such a pleasure. To, it's such a pleasure to talk to you, Pam. I I so appreciate the work that you do and. Um, it's nice to be able to play with you in the garden. Yeah, well, thank you. It's good to play with you, too. Okay, everybody, thank you so much for joining us today, and we'll talk to you next month.